right. Um, you gotta look some. Turn to Mark chapter one. Mark chapter one. Now, as I'm studying, I'm a little slow in my studying, and I told you as I have something to present in Mark, I'm going to present it. If not, we're going to continue our study on biblical sexuality. And uh, so since I have enough to actually deal with the subject, we're back as we're marching through Mark. We're going to do Mark this week and then next week, most likely, unless I get a whole lot of time to sit and study on Mark, uh, we will continue with our series on biblical sexuality next week. Mark 1, we have gotten out of the introduction of this book, the very first uh, 11 verses is kind of the introduction of this gospel, the beginning of the gospel, and it begins with his herald proclaiming him and him being declared to the world by his herald through baptism. And we, a few weeks ago, I believe we saw some, some great things here about his baptism where the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are united, are one in, in our salvation. As he uh, pictured the whole of our salvation there in the baptismal waters and the whole of what it takes to save us, he's the Son in him, the Father is pleased. And we're going to go from there, the beginning of the gospel and Mark's narrative is a quick narrative, and I, would, I, I don't really have a fancy outline. We're just going to kind of start marching through some text here, and uh, I hope it will be a blessing to you. Let's pick up for, in verse 12 and read from there. It says, And immediately the Spirit drives him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beast, and the angels ministered unto him. Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Now, we have dealt with the fact that Mark has an audience that is Roman. Luke, of course, had an audience that was Greek. And Matthew had an audience that was Jewish. And Mark out of all the gospel, four gospel writers, has the least amount of it is fulfilled or it was fulfilled uh, as far as references to Scripture. Um, why? Because his audience uh, 
his audience wasn't that wasn't their that wasn't something that was necessarily uh, resonating with them. He was wanting to strictly tell the story and this action-packed, imperfective kind of aspect where we go from scene to scene to scene to scene hurriedly. And it has this idea of the gospel conquering. And we talked about the problem of evil the first hour for those of you all that were here And we talked just about the fact that this is the answer to the problem. The problem of our sin, the problem of evil, is is answered in the Scriptures. There was a moment in time where the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. There was a moment of time that He came and He conquered and was presented the world and, and did a ministry here on this earth and went to the cross and conquered. And said it is finished. And Mark, out of all, gets this, con- this conquering Savior, this coming of this conquering Savior. He brings that aspect to bear. The beginning of the gospel he, uh, of the Son of God goes from one that is coming to one that has come. And now in these very first few verses, the one who is proved to be. Here in verse 12, it says that immediately the Spirit drives him into the wilderness and he's tempted and he's in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and angels ministered to him. And here we have a condensed account that is more full in the book of Matthew and in the book of Luke, the other two synoptic gospels. The condensed details of the scrutiny of Christ by the accuser. Here is the enemy. And after he is presented to the world, he is immediately confronted with the enemy. He's confronted with that old serpent, the devil, Satan, who is there to try to devour him and conquer him, the accuser of the brethren, who is tempting him to find something in him that he can defeat. Now, the other two synoptic Gospels, Matthew and Luke, give a fuller treatment of the nature of the temptation. So, like in Matthew and Luke, you have uh, the questions that the devil was asking. Uh, uh, turn these stones, if, you're, if you are the Son of God, why don't you turn these stones into bread? Or, or uh, using and twisting of the Scriptures. And Mark, though, chose to condense this entire scene to these two verses. This, by the way, shows that it was an important event. An important event that Mark... By the way, if you were trying to write a scroll and send it to places, you were very economic in the words that you use. And he says, I cannot leave this part out. And he deemed it to be so important, but he, in an economic way, condenses it down to what we have right here. And he believed these points were sufficient for his Roman readers. This is the captain of our salvation. 
going into hostile territory. And something that no doubt resonated with his readers. It marks a warfare. What did it say in the very beginning when we were introduced to the serpent way back in Genesis? He says, I will put enmity. There's war going on here between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. In this warfare that was from the beginning. And as we talk about Christ coming to the world, He is now presented to the world. He is now going to be confronted by the enemy. John does not relate to temptation at all. He's the only of the four Gospels that does not relate to temptation in the wilderness. But it is covered in all three synoptics. Now, the, the verb, though, is different. What, what, what we have to ask ourselves when we're looking at the synoptics, what is different about Mark's account as opposed to Luke and Matthew? And one thing is, is the very verb. It says, and immediately the Spirit drives him or... Uh, uh, it, it driveth here in the King James English. It says, and immediately the Spirit drives him. Now, when you're looking at the book of Mark or uh, book of Matthew or the book of Luke, it has a, it has different variations of a verb that just simply means to lead. Uh, when you're reading in Matthew, you have he was moved by the Spirit, or or Luke he was led by the Spirit. Uh, here it's asserted that he was driven. And the word and 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 the the verb here is even more emphatic to drive or to cast him out. Now, definitely, the spirit wasn't casting him out as as uh, in that sense. But there is an intensity highlighted by Mark by the use of this verb that might be deeper than meets the eye. It fits the intensity of the narrative that I said, uh, that, that we see in Mark. Mark is an action, <laughs> like an action film. And there's an intensity to the, merit, the narrative. It's not that the Spirit was working contrary to Christ, casting Him out, but He became a driving force in Christ. Synoptically speaking, there may be a broader picture here also of Israel passing through the Red Sea, passing through the Jordan, going into the, or passing into the Red Sea, going into the wilderness where he is tempted. And I, I, I think that even Roman readers, even with Roman readers, Mark could not leave out this picture of Christ as the true Israel. Israel in the temptation failed, but Christ would be victorious. But he was driven by the Holy Spirit to where he was. Another important aspect as you ask yourself what is unique about Mark is two things. The introduction of the enemy, Satan, particularly. The use of Satan as a title when, as Matthew and Luke just simply used the title devil. And the assertion that Christ was with the wild beast are two particular additions to Mark's narrative. The assumption that the Roman reader is already acquainted with the creation and fall of man, already acquainted with the enemy and the tempter of man. And here it says, And immediately the Spirit drives him in the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted of Satan. Tempted. Now, this word, tempted, the underlying word of it, could be tempted or tested. 
as in, uh, as in Abraham was tested of God. He wasn't tempting Abraham to sin. Uh, so it could mean tested, giving the uh, given the context, or it could mean actually what you and I consider tempta- uh, temptation, a temptation towards evil, a temptation towards sin. Now, since it is the adversary, the devil, that is the active agent here, tempting is the obvious meaning. The devil... You and I have an enemy. Amen? You and I have an enemy that is walking about, seeking whom he may devour. And he does a pretty efficient job. He is swallowing people up day in and day out and has for how long has human history been going on? (laughs) A long time. Here, the enemy is walking about to devour our Lord. The imagery there of of Revelation 12 comes through our mind where he was ready to devour the child as soon as he came into the world. He was out to destroy our Lord, our representative. We We had a representative before, who was tempted of Satan. Adam, right? And he represented us well because, look at us, we have continued in sin ever since. He was probably the greatest of our representatives. And here comes the serpent into the garden to tempt, who was more subtle, more crafty than any enemy. And he tempted, and he won. And man fell, and in Adam all die. And if you don't know Christ, that's your story too. You are where death reigns. Here he is again, seeking whom he may devour. Here he is, coming to the second man. You know the terminology there in 1 Corinthians 15. The last Adam, the second man. In Adam all die, but in Christ. There's another head. There's another representative that we can be in. In Christ, all shall be made alive. Here he comes, as in 2 Corinthians 15, 45 through 47, to tempt the second man. But he emerges victorious. He, the second man, the quickening spirit, the one in whom we might live, I love when Paul grabs a hold of this, of this ideology and he, he starts to write it out there in Romans chapter 5 where he talks about uh, by one man sin entered the world and death by sin, but by the obedience of one many shall be made alive. And what a wonderful thing there in Romans chapter 5 where we see our part in his victory. 
we see our righteousness here. He was tempted. And as such, he reconciled creation to himself. Uh, it says here, he was ministered of angels and he was with the beast, the wild beast. Now, I don't want to spend too much time making commentary on this, but, uh, but both realms are subject to him. All angels worship him. Uh, Psalm 91, thou shalt tread upon the lion and the adder, the young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under feet. They look to him. He is their Lord. And here we have this great picture. He is, Meyer says in his commentary, he is threatened in a twofold manner. Satan tempts him and the wild beasts encompass him. The typical reference according to which Christ is held to appear as the renewer of paradise. Here we almost have, he's with the wild beast. I, I cannot help but see the picture almost of Daniel and the lion's den. <laughs> there in the wilderness, there encompassed with dangers and there... Emerging victorious, the mouths of the beast shut. And at the end, the angels come and serve him, and they come and worship him. They sang his praises at birth, and now they minister to him in the battle as he emerges victorious. The tempter must leave and have nothing to accuse our Lord in regard to sin. And at the end of this text, we simply write, to, write in the margin, Behold our sinless Savior. And that is enough. I do want to say before we go on and talk about his ministry what the text does not talk about. But we have to talk about because it's of theological importance. The impeccability or the peccability of Christ. Now what do we mean by these terms? Now, there is a theological debate that's been going on for 2,000 years about the nature of our Lord. Was He peccable? Could He have sinned here? Or was He impeccable? Could He, or did, did He have, was not having the possibility of falling? And this is a theological debate, and we cannot pretend like when we're reading the Scriptures, we're not going to have to try to go through, go through and answer these questions. The devil tempting the Lord and Christ being subject to temptation does not in and of itself solve the debate. Here's the issues. And this is what you're going to find on, online as you, as you present your faith. You're going to be thrown a lot of different curveballs. Uh, I just saw an atheist... Uh, on Twitter, post, uh, post uh, a, a meme about this very thing, and a meme for those of you, those of you that don't have online. That's a picture that's got words on it that people post online, <laughs> and uh, and there's supposed to be these knockout punches in some of these arguments. Oh, I got this meme, and I shared it. And now everybody's gonna, now everybody sees my point of view, how how logical my point of view is. Uh, God save us from the world of the, from the theology of memes. <laughs> Amen. Uh, truth can barely be be uh, summed up in a couple short words on a picture. Um, but I saw someone post this very thing. He says says that that mentioned this very thing, and it was meant to attack the deity of Christ. What does James chapter one say? 
James chapter 1 says, God cannot be tempted with evil. And you say, and, and we believe that Jesus is God. So here is Jesus being tempted with evil. And man, we have now shown you contradictions in your scripture. He cannot be God. Well, here's the issue. He is God. The scriptures plainly say he's God. But he made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and became obedience. Whatever we say about Christ, we have to realize Christ was just as human as you and I. But he's God. And I'm glad because this is how he redeems us. Hebrews 2 tells us he had to be a partaker of our flesh and blood in order to save us, to be our high priest, to be able to secure us. Hebrews 4 says, We have not a high priest which cannot be tempted with our, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are. And then added the wonderful words without sin. So I, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm going to may disappoint you bringing up this subject and not necessarily give you an answer. I know that Jesus is God, could not sin. I know Jesus as a man was tempted at all points like us. But here's what I do know about this great debate. He didn't sin. And because of that, he was a spotless lamb that was offered for our sins. You could not die for your own sins. Your death would not be sufficient, but his was because he was without spot. And once again, as we see these texts, we have to write off into the margins, Behold our sinless Savior. Because this is where our hope is. I got time to cover a couple more verses. Christ goes from the confrontation with the devil to his conquering of the world. It says here in verse 14, Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom and saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is hand, Repent ye and believe the gospel. So this is the confrontation. He now arises victorious from the wilderness after being fully tested or tempted of our tempter, of our enemy, who could not defeat him. Going through the flood of baptism and through the wilderness of temptation, our Joshua now enters the promised land. To conquer. The gospel has arrived and confronts the world. I do want to say in I, I still have plenty. I feel like I've, I've been going talking for a long time and I look at my watch and it says I've only been talking for a few minutes so I've got plenty of time. I don't need to hurry. 
the gospel confronts you. We have in our society this desire to defang the gospel, to, to, sharp, to sharpen down its edges, to blunt its edges. But the gospel confronts people. When the gospel entered the world, it entered confronting sinful men and sinful women of their need to turn from those sins to Christ. And I find so much of so much in our culture that is just appalled by that idea. First, the context of this confrontation is seen. After John was cast into prison, or put into prison as it says here, and actually the underlying verb is really the same verb that we have when it says Judas betrayed our Lord. That's that same verb there that's translated put. Um, or... Um, or uh, that the, or that the Jews had betrayed him over to Pilate. That, that's that same verb that uh, that uh, didomi, paradidomi. Uh, that, that's what that's what's there. And we have this temporal adverbial clause. After this, in, in that verb for betray, being the underlying verb here, use. Uh, gives the possibility that G, that John himself was betrayed. In fact, Jesus Christ would later said that that Elijah has already come, and they did to him what they are going to, going to do to Christ in Matthew seventeen. So it leaves this idea that 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 the Jewish leadership themselves had turned over or 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 had in some way betrayed John as well. I, I don't want to get too deep into that, and I'm just trying to uh, to. Uh, parse out a verb here that's being used. But it marked, what, what you have here, it marks a continuation of what he was doing. What John began to proclaim was what Christ in the fullness of truth would continue. After John, Jesus. And of course, that's exactly what was foretold there in verse 2 and 3. Peter preached this to Cornelius, Acts chapter 10. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace to Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. That word, I say, ye know, which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. The law and the prophets have ceased. The sons now hear. God at sundry times and in diverse manners has spoken to us by the prophets. Now speaks to us by the Son. The setting of the preaching ministry is where? It says here, Now, after John was put into the prison, Jesus came into Galilee. 
This is the main thought, or this is the main part of the sentence uh, with three adverbial clauses, one already coming, two more to come. Uh, But this is the main part of the sentence. Jesus came into Galilee. Now, this is just a historical fact for his readers. I don't think there's anything deeper significance than that. Um, Matthew would speak to the Jewish audience that he had about this being a fulfillment, that the people that sat in darkness, when he went into Galilee, the people that sat in darkness would see a great light. And there's a prophecy being fulfilled here according to Matthew, but, uh, but Mark is just giving us the historical account. He came into Galilee. What was Galilee? Galilee, the most northern part of Israel, and the most populous of the three providences of Israel, into which the Romans had divided Palestine. It was to Roman Palestine, says the Cambridge uh, Bible uh, notes, it was to Roman Palestine what the manufacturing districts of England were uh, to England. Uh, Covered with busy towns, teeming with villages, Roman custom houses, and thriving fisheries. It was where people, God's people was sitting in darkness and a great place of Gentile commerce. I like to think that he had us in mind when he started in Galilee. So we have the setting. Jesus begins to preach after John is in prison. We have the mechanics. Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. That's what it says here. Preaching the gospel of the kingdom. This is the second adverbial clause uh, built on the present participle. About Now, when we're talking about adverbial clauses, this could be a temporal idea. He came while preaching. It could be an idea of manner. He came by preaching, this being the impact of his coming. He showed up and he was preaching. What an immediately impact. Or it could be the purpose, idea of purpose. He came in order to preach. Either way, preaching defined Christ in the beginning of his ministry. He was declaring definitively, distinctly the truth. For those that minimize the importance of doctrine, um, here we're going to have an issue with Christ. Christ was declaring with authority. He was declaring the kingdom of God, the rule and authority of God. Now, there is a variant here. Uh, in some other translations will be uh, built on the critical text. We'll read that he was declaring, preaching the gospel, the, the gospel of or will not have the word kingdom here, that he was re- preaching the gospel. Now, overall, though, the kingdom is the, is the overall context. We're talking about the beginning of the gospel, uh, and it goes on in the very next verse, in verse 15, to make the kingdom of God the content. So it's one of those variants that is not, not necessarily of any, of any real uh, contention. Christ came as the Lord. What are you saying? What is he saying when he's saying the kingdom is here? Well, we'll get to that in a second. Well, we'll get to it now. But he's declaring the rule and authority of God is now 
with them. And then the last clause, and then I'm going to quit. The terms that he was preaching. How he came, he came saying, that's the adverbial clause, the time is fulfilled, the gospel of the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Three specific points here. The fulfillment of time, the coming of the kingdom, and the response that it demands. You know, we live in a world in where the time is now fulfilled. It, it, it's in the perfect indicative. It, it, it was something that happened and was effective at the time that Christ spoke the words. The fullness of time. The time that all things would begin to be gathered together in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1. The time of the long expected Messiah was here where in the fullness of time He was made of a woman, made under the law that He might redeem those that are that are under the law. So he preached that the time was fulfilled. He preached that the kingdom was near, is near again in the perfect. It has already come. It remains near. Daniel said in Daniel chapter 2, in In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. The kingdom is near. I like what it says over there in 1 Corinthians 15. He must reign until. He's in charge now. He is set down at the right hand of power now. He is reigning now. And one day that will be manifest to all. But the kingdom is near. And it shall never be destroyed. We see... Uh, the rise of secularism around us and, and everybody seems to be driving this idea that Jesus is Lord out of, the, out of all aspects of life and we're going to make our own rule. We're going to make our own, oh, we're going to be our own gods. But He is Lord of lords and King of kings. The kingdom is near. This is what was continued to be preached. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power Christ would continue to declare the kingdom of God of heaven. That it was among them. That it was in them. That it was within them. The authority and rule of God arrived when Christ did. And has not stopped. And then finally, before you all start falling out on me, (laughs) the terms are simple. Repent and believe. That's, this is the hated part. A gospel without repentance is going to be accepted every, anywhere it's preached. That's why we end up in a world where we have Christian atheists. Imagine that. I, I interact sometimes with this one gentleman online who is constantly beating a drum that if you are telling anyone they need to repent, you are not loving. How can you be loving and not tell people to turn from danger and turn to Christ? If you're continuing in your sin, you 
need to turn. And anybody that says, you can continue on your way, you're fine, God loves you, is not preaching a gospel. And if that's the gospel you're preaching, you're not preaching the gospel that Christ preached. You're not presenting a Christianity that is in line with the Scriptures. Jesus preached repentance and faith. Cannot continue to let people go on their way without warning them. What did did Ezekiel say? Or God, God rather say to Ezekiel, if you see the danger coming and you do not warn them from their wicked ways, they shall die in their sins and their blood will I require at your hands. That's some strong words. We cannot buy into this fact, this idea that the gospel that we preach does not confront sin and does not confront the lives of those that are continuing in sin. He says repent. That's part of the message of Christ. This is a continuation of the greater grounds of which John preached. What did John preach? Repent, for one is coming. Jesus now repents and says, it's already here. And what does he tell the church to do? Repentance and the remission of sin shall be preached in all nations. It has never ceased to be a part. I, I, I have known these hyper-dispensationalists that chop the Scriptures up and say, okay, well, the, that ended there, and he, what he meant there in Acts chapter 2, he's preaching to the Jews, but after that, you're no longer repenting. No, that's what has been preached. That's what has been sent out. John said to repent for one is coming. Then Jesus says, repent for I'm here. Now, repentance is not, the pulpit commentary has this. It says, repentance itself is not sufficient. It makes no satisfaction for the law which we have broken. And hence, over and above repentance, there is a requiring from us faith in the gospel wherein Christ is revealed to us as a propitiation for sins. And the only way of reconciliation with the Father. Without faith, repentance becomes despair. Without repentance, faith becomes only presumption. Join the two together, and the faithful soul is borne onwards like a well-balanced vessel to the haven where it would be. I thought that was a good quote. Repentance is essential. I know it's over-preached. It can become legalistic. It can become a lot of things in the hands of people who misuse the Scriptures, but we cannot say it's not essential and wish to write it out and say, as long as you have this or whatever. When Price spoke about the difference between the saved sinners that were eating with him and the lost righteous who refused to eat with him, In the parable of the two sons in Matthew 21, the difference was is one repented and the other didn't. That was the difference. And this is what Christ has commanded us to preach. The early church faithfully declared that message. The gospel is for sinners. 
to go after Christ from their sins. What is repentance? Metanaeo. To think differently. Repentance is what was captured in the great description of our regeneration. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. The term, the the meta, after the naeo, to understand, to think. It's this idea of our minds changing. Our minds were alienated for God, but now our minds are after God. Our minds were, our, our desires, our minds were after our sinful desires, but now they are after Christ. Christ as Lord and King will not allow you to come to Him with your sin and a divided loyalty. I like, uh, I know I probably used the word I like too much, and I'm 10 minutes over. I'm sorry. Reading John Bunyan's uh, autobiography, The Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And in his mind, a clear choice was laid before him Will you have your sin, or will you have Christ? Will you have your sin or will you have Christ? The world right now, the Christian world, the evangelical Western church, whatever, is telling you, you don't need to make such a choice. It's such a dichotomy. You you, you can continue on your way and you can still have this fire assurance, insurance, this flu shot. You can have this Christian moniker and everything's all right. But if you're continuing in sin, you are going opposite the command of Christ. It's interesting that it says we're not saved by works. Amen? Praise the Lord. But when it talks about the gospel, the gospel is something to be obeyed. Amen? He will have fiery vengeance on those that obey not the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 1.8, 1 Peter 4.17. And I'm not, one, I'm not trying to make this a legalistic thing, and, and I hope that that's not how it's coming across, because as we talk about repentance, that always becomes the major thing. It's simply this. Christ is a Savior from sin. When He hung upon the cross, it was our sin that put Him there. And it confronts us. Will you have your sin or will you have Christ? I'm not saying sinless perfection afterwards. Every one of us in here that are saved are stumbling all over the place all the time. Praise the Lord that we're saved by grace through faith. But when the gospel is preached, 
It is rescuing people from sin. Going down the line again of 1 Corinthians 6, the fornicator, the adulterer, the effeminate, the abusers of themselves with mankind, the drunkard. They don't have their part in the kingdom of heaven. But such were. Something changed. The time is now fulfilled, Acts 17. The time is now fulfilled and now all men everywhere are commanded to repent. And I offer that to anyone that may or may know the gospel or may not know Christ as their Lord today. That's what's set before you. This is the gospel that is set before us. This is the message that is set before us. Christ can save any that come to him. And in the coming of the him, coming to him is repentance. I invite you to come to Christ. We'll stop there. And next week we're going to talk about how that looked. He walked by the wayside. He walked by the seaside and he saw two brothers and he said, follow me. And they continued mending their nets and did nothing. And said, I'm going to start following you sooner. No, says they left.